Well, I remember driving to Denver to visit Tina's parents when our four children were younger, and uh, we'd take the seats out of our minivan to make a bed, illegal, uh, strap a portable TV set on top of a cooler, unwise, and, and then we would uh, leave at dusk so that we could drive the 997 miles straight through the night uh, in 17 hours with lots of coffee. Absolutely crazy. Uh, but it wouldn't be till we were maybe at St. Louis, and the kids would ask, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. Finish your movie and go to sleep. You'll wake up, you'll be at Denver. Well, we are now four days into our 40-day adventure finding real life. And no, we're not there yet. But we are well on the way in this season of discovery and growth and change. It coincides with the historic observation of Lent and practices that surround it and culminates with a celebration on Easter Sunday of Christ's resurrection. Our expectations in these 40 days are rooted in three cornerstone prayers. The first for ourselves, that we'll experience the real life that Jesus said he came to give in a greater and fuller dimension. Our second prayer is for our friends, that the Holy Spirit would influence our five friends for the sake of his kingdom. And thirdly, for our church and our community. We're asking God to grace our church family and the communities that are represented in our church family with his power and his presence. Now, many of us are now strengthening our 40-day experience by some sort of fasting. Uh, Kudos to all of you who have made it through the detox from whatever it is you're fasting in the last week, and we're now on the way. Uh, Each week, we're looking at the Gospels, And then we're applying that lesson in our life, specifically in our small groups that meet weekly. And today, as we look to God's Word, we're going to discover that real life is freedom from sin. So let's pray together before we look at God's Word. Lord, we bow our heads uh, and our hearts at the start of this brand new day, at the start of this brand new week, and we uh, just pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless your name. We bless your name, Lord, for the forgiveness that comes through Christ. We bless your name for the filling of your Holy Spirit, your down payment that says everything you've promised will indeed come to pass. We bless your name for freedom from sickness and disease and for health in our bodies and blessing and favor in our lives and families. And we bless your name for the security that's in Christ against an uncertain future. And Lord, then we pray that your kingdom would come that your will would be done here on the earth, among us here in this auditorium and right next door where the Vineyard Kids are are worshiping and learning as well. And, and in all of our lives, Lord, bring your kingdom as we enter this season of renewal and growth and hope and expectation and change. Put your power in our lives today on your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to hear, uh, to, to obey is, is our prayer in your name. Amen. If we were to compile a list of the 10 most important discoveries of all time, it's likely that some of our lists might share similar entries. Uh, arguably, the use and control of fire uh, might make the most important uh, uh, discovery that the species has ever made. The wheel, paper, movable type, uh, Copernicus's discovery in 1543 that the uh, that placed the sun, not the earth, at the center of the solar system. Uh, it was French 
chemist Louis Pasteur's observations about diseases and his emerging germ theory in 18, uh, early 1800s that might make the list. Some of us might have said Gregor Mendel's discovery of how genetic information is passed in 1854. Um, it's quite possible that for the two billion Christ followers around the world, the most vital and life-changing discovery is that God provided the solution for the universal, sinful, broken human condition in the love of Christ. Jesus framed his mission on the earth with these powerful words in the Gospel of John. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. I like how the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible, spins it, that they might have life and have it to the full. The New American Standard reads that they might have life and have it abundantly. Eugene Peterson's The Message translation reads, I came so that they can have life, real and eternal life, more and a better life than you've ever dreamed. And so God has provided a way for people, regardless of age or creed or culture or gender to experience real life, a rich and satisfying life. And this, I believe, is the greatest discovery ever made. Now, there are a number of stories in the Gospels that illustrate this powerful truth, and I'd like to invite you this morning to turn with me to John's Gospel, the eighth chapter, where we're going to read a very profound story. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles up here on either side of the stage. You can come up and get one, or uh, Bill may, may even pass one out. If you'd like a Bible, it's actually our gift to you. Uh, just raise your hand. He'll, he'll pass a couple around. It's, it's written in a language you can understand. It's the New Living Translation, and um, our gift to you. You can take it. Uh, John chapter 8, we're going to begin reading in the very first verse, John's Gospel. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of a religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Now, the setting of the story is the Jewish temple. The temple was the central fixture in Judaism. It was... uh, a building that was beyond our imagination today. In terms of architectural wonders, it was at the top of the list. Covered four city blocks. It was surrounded by massive 40-foot stone walls, covered colonnades. The pillars that upheld the temple were hewn out of a single block of white marble. Um, Its 30-foot doors were covered with pure gold. Absolutely, incredibly stunning. And yet, despite all of its visual splendor, by now, it had little inner life. The Jewish religion had lost its way and in many respects had become um, a full of form and ritual and tradition. Now, the antagonists in this story are the teachers of the religious law, also the Pharisees and scribes. The victim was a poor woman who had lost the the last round in the battle of life. Uh, Just so that we're clear, she was caught in the act of adultery, consensual, voluntary sexual relations between a man, uh, a married man or woman, and someone who is not his or her spouse. 
the circumstances of how she was apprehended, or what business the scribes and Pharisees had in looking for her in the first place, is left to conjecture. No comment in the text. There she was, railroaded in front of the crowd in the middle of what we would call church. Now, she was likely someone's neighbor in that crowd. She was probably a good friend to other women in the audience that day. Her kids were known in the local school. Perhaps her husband had a good reputation in the community. Perhaps he was a hardworking employer or even a business owner. But here now she stands in front of the crowd, caught in sin, broken, publicly humiliated at probably the low point in her entire life. Continue reading in verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, we have to understand that the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, was not only God's religious law, governing morals and ethics and behavior and dress and dietary restrictions. But it was also the law of the land. It governed civil and uh, social dealings, relationships between people, how to resolve conflicts when there were parties that disagreed. And in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, in God's law, uh, the, the Bible declared if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the other woman's wife must be killed. So the woman, caught in the very act, was justly sentenced to death by stoning. No doubt, she's a little nervous at this point in her life. <laughs> but I'm wanting to know, where's the guy? You know, like, he was an equal partner in guilt, right? No mention made of, like, the scribes and Pharisees. Who, I mean, he would have been caught in the act too, right? I mean, that's the way it works. <laughs> but he's not there. He's just as guilty, just as deserving of the death sentence. And, and sadly, again, the Holy Spirit, like, draws a shadow over that. No answer in the text. Now, it's perhaps difficult for us to identify with such drastic measures for such a common pervasive offense today, isn't it? You know, the statistics of adultery do vary, but but generally they show that somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of all married men and 20 to 22 percent of, of married women have had or will have an affair at some point in their married life. And so if, some, if such a sentence were executed today, it'd mean there are a lot less people around. I mean, it's like, who doesn't show up for work or school tomorrow? Now, we may all be kind of exhaling an internal sigh of relief to think, you know, we're glad we didn't live back then, or I'm glad I didn't commit adultery. But before we become too smug too quickly, just wait, because we are all the woman in the story. The reality is that we're all under a sentence of death because we're all sinners. Now, sin is just not a very popular word in our culture today. Uh, it's kind of thought to be archaic, rather out of step with the times. Uh, we, we think it's an old-fashioned concept that came to the States with the Puritans on the Mayflower. Uh, 
Today, it's often viewed as the judgmental rhetoric of narrow-minded religious conservatives who are angry with the world. Well, I think actually an accurate charge could be made that through the centuries, the church hasn't done a very good job of handling the word appropriately. In this sense, we probably deserve a little bit of the bad rap that we've got. We've portrayed God as the angry father who's standing at the top of the celestial staircase staircase with neck veins bulging and ready to squash us sinners like a bug, shouting down, stop having so much fun through your sin down there. Sin is fun in a lot of ways. And so the church has worked overtime at creating this image that God's upset and angry with our sin. And despite... The church's massive failure and shortcoming. Nevertheless, the truth that it has tried to convey stands true that the human condition can best be described as sinful or broken or fallen. God's original intent has been marred. Now, as a hopefully helpful exercise, I want us to kind of identify with, with this. I want you to imagine the most saintly person you can muster. Now, it's likely that, you know, for some of you, it may have been an extended family member, a great-grandparent, or an aunt or an uncle, but it's likely also that many of our lists would have included Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. Historically, around the world, two of the people that are regarded as the most saintly people. So if Jesus is up here, you know, in terms of setting the bar above sin, Teresa and Billy are like right here, okay? And then we're kind of like down here. But listen to the words of Billy Graham in his biography, Just As Am. He says, I assert my own sinfulness. And Mother Teresa in the book, Mother Teresa, Come Be My Light, the correspondence with her superiors reveals that she consistently saw herself as a sinner as well. So where does that leave us? In the same boat. Sinners. People that we think are certainly closer to Jesus and more saintly than we are saw themselves through and through as thoroughly sinful. So are we. Now, over the years, I've observed that people have responded to this news of universal sinfulness and brokenness in all kinds of creative and imaginative ways. A large number of people simply deny it. They just pretend as if it really isn't true. It doesn't exist. Others misinterpret sinfulness as a human appetite. And so they're driven to succeed or to drink or or to overeat as a way of assuaging that inner conviction, that guilt. Some try to pay God back, and so they're they're driven to uh, repay the debt through a life of service and, and good deeds and charitable giving and other religious ritual. But by far the biggest majority of us while admitting to doing some things that we know aren't right, uh, we just don't think of ourselves as sinners, do we? Um, you know, when we compare ourselves with a corporate embezzler or a drug dealer or a pedophile, we think, hey, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm all right. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm honest most of the time. I'm, I volunteer. I, I give some money to the, to the church. I, I vote in the elections. I, I buy cookies from the Girl Scouts. I mean, what, what could God have with me? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that in our deepest heart, when the lights are low 
and the shades are drawn, and we were absolutely, totally honest, every single one of us would admit that we regularly do things, think things, and say things that we know to be wrong, and we don't do and don't say and don't think things that are absolutely right. And God calls this sin. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes the human condition in the New Testament letter to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and chapter 6, verse 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, everyone means everyone. Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and you and me. Everyone has sinned and has fallen short. That is, we don't measure up. We fall short of God's glorious standard. And the text says that the wages of the sin is death, physical death now and the spiritual death of separation from God now and in all eternity. We are basically selfish. We want our own way. We want to live untouched by the needs of others, especially the least and the lost and the last and the poor. Uh, we we carry around jealousies and, and envy uh, of what other people possess. We want to get revenge on people who slander us or say mean things about us or a boss or a supervisor who overlooks us for a promotion that we certainly think we deserve or, or who doesn't recognize our contribution. We want to strangle our kids when they don't obey us the first time right away with a thank you, ma'am, or a thank you, sir. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we swear, we gossip, we abuse substances, we even commit adultery. Friends, the truth is we are all the woman in the story. Now the text reads that they were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that he could use against, that they could use against him. And, and here's just a little bit of understanding about that. Had Jesus instructed the religious leaders to actually stone the woman, he would have been acting out of character from the God whose, whose uh, fame he was trying to represent. And, of course, they had seen him move in love and compassion. That was the hallmark of his ministry. Jesus had hung around the ostracized, the marginalized, the poor, the broken, the prostitute, the tax collector. And so it would have been uncharacteristic of God. And on the other hand, conversely, if Jesus had forbidden her stoning, they would have accused him of relaxing public morals and consequently have been a lawbreaker. And so it was a dilemma. Jesus, in some senses, couldn't win. So verse 6 tells us that he stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. I wonder what he wrote. Now, part of me wants to believe that he wasn't at all a loss for words, that he was exercising self-restraint. His rabbi taught him, well, count to ten, count to ten, (laughs) because he was ready to unload both barrels. Maybe he was waiting for a word of wisdom from the Holy Spirit. As a man who operated with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Jesus had surrendered his divinity, his divine privileges, and he didn't know everything at every time. And so he needed a word of wisdom from the Holy Spirit at that moment to know what to do. Or maybe, just as God had written the Ten Commandments with his finger, Jesus now wrote down the opening phrase of the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Because in writing so, every man in the audience would have been convicted. Because Matthew's Gospel records Jesus' words and said, If any of you looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. 
guilty, guilty, guilty. They're all busted. I like to conjecture things like that. When the text is silent, don't take any of them to the bank. But let's continue reading verse 7 to 9. They kept demanding an answer. And so Jesus stood up again and said, all right, stoner. But let those of you who have never sinned throw the first stones. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. An absolutely brilliant response. And Jesus went straight to the core of the issue without categorizing sin, without prioritizing which one was more flagrant. He basically said, you're all busted, you're all guilty. Describes the human condition. Let's read the balance of the story then in verses 9 to 11. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. So convicted now by their conscience, the religious leaders began to file out the oldest and wisest leaving first until there was no one there without sin. Up to this moment, the, the woman had been at the mercy of men who were full bent on killing her. Now she stands at the mercy of one who graciously forgives. And in reverence and in humility, she surrenders her life. No, Lord. So with all the tenderness and compassion and love that only God can offer, Jesus welcomes her, a broken, sinful woman, plagued with guilt, public embarrassment, totally shamed to the core. He welcomes her into his kingdom when he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus loved this woman and welcomed her home. Jesus loves us and welcomes us home. He loves us and will forgive our sins as well as we surrender like she did. This is the good news. This is the good news that people are actually longing for and the church is discharged to share. You see, when God's kingdom rule breaks in among us, our deepest need, our greatest problem, our most profound pain is actually dealt with. Jesus came to forgive our sin and set us free and give us real life. John, the gospel writer, framed it a different way in the third chapter, the 16th verse, with these familiar words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And you see this because everywhere Jesus went, he loved people and he offered forgiveness for their sin. There was the despised chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, in Luke 19, a paralyzed man whom four friends brought to Jesus through the roof, a prostitute who anointed Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. In the story, the lost son had a prodigal father who welcomed him back from a long way off. 
You see, God's mercy transcends culture. It transcends color. It transcends status and education and money and place and station in life. It, it goes for all people. It's inexhaustible and never-ending. Jesus welcomes us back into relationship with the living God. And when we take that step towards him and surrender our lives in humility to him like the woman did, at that moment we're forgiven and made brand new. Now, forgiveness is not some abstract doctrine or church ritual. Rather, it's a tangible, factual, spiritual reality that releases the healing power of God in our lives to restore and recreate people, not just to take us to heaven when we die. That's such a a shortened and, and minimized view of what forgiveness is all about. Friends, when the kingdom comes, Jesus doesn't just uh, come up with a patch job on our old life. He makes us entirely new. He forgives our sin. He breaks its power in our life, and he makes us new. He, when that forgiveness comes, it completely sets us free. This forgiveness releases the healing power of God in our mind and in our memory and in our body and our emotions, our relationships, our home life, the way we manage our finances, our our work, our values, our priorities, our goals and visions for life. God's forgiveness comes to set us completely free and change us in all of these ways. I love how the Apostle Paul framed this real life with these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead. Come back to God. So we can now have a new life, a rich and satisfying life, a meaningful life. We can have real life right now because of the pardon and forgiveness that Jesus offers to us. Friends, Jesus says, I love you. I welcome you back. I don't hold your sins against you. You belong to me. You matter to me. And you can have real life right now. You can can continually experience the forgiveness of God for your sin and have a whole and lasting life because of what I've already done. And then he calls us, to live out this new life that we've received with his encouragement to go and sin no more. Fact is, he didn't approve of the woman's way of life. Uh, No, in fact, he exhorted her to leave that life of sin. Go and sin no more, he said. And so this is this is precisely what the new life in Jesus means, that we receive forgiveness for the old, sinful, self-centered way of living that we've chosen to live, and we turn and we deliberately, consciously now live a life fully devoted and surrendered to Him, following Him wherever He leads us. And He calls us to live in the reality of what has actually already happened in our heart. 
So now for years, religion has taught that the real life of God's kingdom was all about managing our sin and struggling to be good and do right. But thankfully, Jesus brings his love and his mercy and his forgiveness from the Father, and he's already taken care of our sin problem. And when his kingdom comes, it exposes religion. Religion is challenged. As we see in the story, the the hardness of legalism and judgmentalism and antagonism against mercy, as well as thinking that real life is found in religious rule-keeping and moral piety, Jesus smokes all that out in this exchange. He says real life is freedom from sin. God's kingdom means that we actually get what we don't deserve and we could never earn. That's what honked those people off so much. They were trying their darndest to earn God's favor. And Jesus said it doesn't matter because mercy shows that you get what you don't deserve. You get what you can never earn. The good news is that guilty, broken sinners like you and me can find forgiveness even though we don't deserve it. We get the free gift of life from Jesus. And then he says we've actually been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. And so our model is Jesus' model. It's a two-part model. First, the neither do I condemn you part. Now, see, we've got to tell our five friends for whom we're praying, people in your sphere of influence, where you work, where you live, people with whom you do life, that God loves them unconditionally, that God isn't holding their sins against them. That's the good news. Urge them to come back to God to whom they already belong. That's why Paul said that we're to urge people, come back to God. Because we already belong to God and we already matter to God. And, and, and then we tell our friends that they're genuinely welcome in our church family because we're going to, to, uh, offer them non-judgmental acceptance into the family of God. Uh, and, and, and we're going to remove as many barriers as possible to make that happen. That's what Jesus was doing, removing the barriers to make it possible for people to experience his love and forgiveness. And then we've got to be prepared for things in our church life to not be antiseptic and clean because sinners are messy. And so our church life is always going to be a a, a little complicated because sinners make messes. And, And, well, it's God's business. We're going to trust him to reveal to people their ultimate need and conviction for sin, their need for Jesus. We're going to, we're going to trust Jesus to, to work in the condition of their heart and prepare it for the place of conviction and guilt and the need of forgiveness. And then we're going to come alongside of them and introduce them to Jesus, who alone can forgive and bring real life. And then we're going to continue to encourage our church family to grow up as loved and forgiven by Jesus Put on the new person. That's the go and sin no more part. So we have a two-part model. Neither do I condemn you part and the go and sin no more part. And so in in this sense, we, like snakes, are going to shed off our old skin. We're going to put on the new man or the new woman. Uh, the, the new man or the new woman that's that's loved and forgiven and, and for whom God is not holding our sins against us. We're We're going to shake off the sinful and self-centered ways of doing life and we're going to we're going to lean into the life of his kingdom as we as we make good choices and and do life together as a body as we try to honor his word in our life as we as we yield to and cooperate with the indwelling holy spirit and learn how to resist temptation and and make better choices so that's the the go and and sin no more part our our growing up 
into God. And that will occupy us for the rest of our lives until Jesus comes again to consummate and bring to completion his kingdom. So, friends, the the most vital and life-changing discovery, the number one at our top ten list, is is this, that that God in his inexhaustible, never-ending love through Jesus offers forgiveness and freedom from sin and ushers you into a new life, a rich and satisfying life a rich and meaningful life, life that is real life, life to the full, life abundantly. I like to call it the real life of his kingdom in a more powerful way. Lord, may we experience that in our 40-day adventure. Father, we're grateful that in the model of the text today, you, you come in your love and in your mercy to bring forgiveness for all of us, broken, sinful, universally separated from you. And you offer us grace and forgiveness. You don't hold our sins against us as we surrender to you. And Lord, I pray that your kingdom would break in in this powerful way among all of us here today. Some perhaps for the very first time. Others who have walked with you, uh, Lord, breathe on us again. Remind us of the, the, the healing power of God that's released in your forgiveness. It's what we're really yearning for, even if we don't have language for it. Put your power to our lives today. And now, Lord, as we continue our worship by giving to you our resources and lifting our hearts and hands in song, we pray that these things would be tokens to you that that we love you and we're surrendered and submitted to you. Put your blessing on them is our prayer in your name. Amen.